Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. We live in a fast-paced world. We live in this super fast world where we have things like 5G um, on your phones, which is supposed to be, uh, you know, faster than 4G. We have things like uh, one of the the projects I was most excited about when we were in Texas was this uh, bullet train that they're building from um, Dallas down to Houston. It'll take 45 minutes to to go the trip there, $100 and 45 minutes. You can go from Dallas to Houston, which normally takes five and a half or six hours. And so we live in that sort of world. One of the reasons or one of the, the big illustrations of that sort of fast-paced, immediate sort of world is two-day shipping, right? Amazon Prime. You can, you can find something that you want, and particularly in 2020, with our Christmas shopping, everything is just about being shopped online. You can find something you want, and then two, uh, two days later, you will get it. In the in where we used to live, we had uh, one hour shipping, and so you could find something on Amazon, and within one hour, it would be delivered uh, to your front door. There, one day I was in, interested in um, a beard trimmer. Okay, and I found this beard trimmer online that had a little vacuum in it. It's not as weird as it sounds, uh, but it was kind of cool. So it would kind of like uh, pull all of the little clippings into a little compartment there on the beard trimmer, and I thought, that man, that's neat. I want to I want to get one of those, and and. I was just too lazy to go to the Walmart that was, you know, a couple blocks away. So I ordered it online, thought in two days, this will be fine. And uh, so I did the two-day shipping thing. Two days came, left, no beard trimmer. A little while later, uh, you know, three days, I started to get a little bit irritated here. Four days came, and I did not have my shipping of two days beard trimmer. And, and things are going bad. I'm getting irritated. I'm getting upset. My beard is getting gnarly. You could almost see it after four days. And so I was getting kind of like upset about it. I needed my beard trimmer. And so I called Amazon. I was like, hey, what's the deal? And uh, the way it turns out is they were like, we don't know where it is. And so go ahead and cancel that order, make another order. And so that's what I did. A day later, my new beard trimmer showed up. Two days later, the original beard trimmer um, showed up. I called Amazon. They were like, I keep it. And so I ended up with two beard trimmers, one face, two beard trimmers, and um, pretty um, happy about that. But my point is that in that situation, I realized again and anew as you do every time you're in a situation, situation like I have no patience. And I am not the sort of person that can wait very long for something that I am expecting. Anybody else like that, that you, you would like to say you have patience, but you don't? Anybody? Everybody. So nobody has patience. And the thing about it is, is the waiting really reveals to us a good bit about our personality. It reveals to us Um, sort of some big questions in life. Whether you're waiting on something small, like an Amazon package, or you're waiting on something large, like these other things. The question is, what do you do while you are waiting? What do you do if you have to wait? What do you do if you are waiting on the doctor to call? That's That's a big thing, right? If you're waiting on the doctor to call, you start to get anxious. You might you might get upset. What, what do you do if you're waiting on your house to be built? That takes a little while. What if you are waiting on a child to be born? You're waiting to conceive. You're waiting on a child to be born. What do you do if you're waiting on Christmas? Waiting on Christmas. My son this morning on the way to church, 
he, he let me know, although he may not want me to say this in front of his mom, but he let me know that he's got his Christmas wish list, right? And then he's Googling the packages of what his items are in and checking the dimensions against the packages that are under uh, the tree. So he's, <laughs> he's back there running one of the, the t- he just switched the camera. He muted the whole feed. Um, but um, that's, that's how that goes. He's checking, he's smart, right? I had no idea you could Google the package size. Um, but waiting on things reveals certain things about us. How are you when you're waiting? Some of you will drive everybody crazy, right? You just talk about it and you research and you're doing this. Some of you drive yourself crazy while you are waiting on things. It shows a lot about our character, our personality, our perspective. It brings up who we are. It should be the easiest thing in the world to do, right? Just do nothing. And yet, it's not. What if, this will put it off to a whole new level. What if you are waiting on God to do something? What if you are waiting on God's timing? He has his own timetable. There's no supervisor you can call. There's no website that you can visit and and check the order of occasions and events and say, well, you're behind God, or we need to hurry up, or I can expect him to move in two days. He has his own timetable. And if you're waiting on God to do something, admittedly, you've already tried everything you know how to do. You've tried your best wisdom, your best efforts. You've talked to experts. You've Googled it. You've talked to friends and pastors and, and, and teachers and professors, and you are stuck there waiting on God to do something at that only God can do in the timetable in which God will do it. This whole text, our first story here in Luke chapter 1, 5 through 25, is all about waiting. It teaches us during this season what we call Advent, or this Christmas holiday that we are looking forward to. It teaches us what to do in the waiting. It also might reveal to us why, why we need to wait. That's what we're going to talk about and look at this morning from Luke chapter 1, 5 through 25. But before we do, let's, let's all pray together. God, thank you for your words, your encouragement, your, your, your life-giving message that we find in the Scripture. God, I pray that we would realize that nearly all of life is in the waiting. That as much as we want to cross the finish line, as much as we want to stand on the platform as winners, first, second, third place, that it takes the four, the eight, the twelve laps around the track, God, that we would realize that all of our lives are spent in the in-between. So God, I pray today that as we leave here, we would not waste the waiting. We would appreciate the waiting. We would appreciate what you are doing, and we would join with you Not only in what you are doing in the lives of others, but what you are doing in our own life. God, encourage us to see waiting as a gift, as a blessing, as a moment to become what it is that you want us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Like I said, the story is in 5 through 25. It's a story. It's a narrative. And so I I just want to kind of tell you the story. We're going to look at some of the elements of not only the narrative or the context, but then also some of the specific words that are used. We'll also look at the content of the conversation. Then we're going to briefly just look at some of the characters, two of the main characters, and then we'll apply that to our lives. 
Here's the story. Instead of reading it to you, I'll just tell you the story. There's these two older individuals. They're married. Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth are their stories. But for our story, we'll call them Zeke and Liz. They've been married for a long time. And Zeke is a priest in the Jewish faith. He has served his whole life in that faith. He's sort of born into it. It's a, it's a family business that he is in. And one day as he is serving other people, ministering the way he's supposed to, the angel of the Lord appears to him with a message, and the angel of the Lord says, Do not be afraid. Your prayer has been answered. Zechariah responds, Zeke responds in the way that a lot of us respond. He says, How can I, how will I know that what you are telling me is true? The angel of the Lord was telling him that even though they were both old, Zeke and Liz, that they were about to have a son, a child that they had been praying for. He says, How can I know? How, how would, I mean, this is impossible. How am I even going to know this? The angel of the Lord says, because you ask dumb questions, you will be dumb uh, the rest of the gestation, the rest of the time it takes uh, for your wife to make a human. So you're not going to um, be able to talk. It appears to me that in the Bible, even though God has a lot of patience with questions, if you think about the story of Moses, where God calls Moses and Moses asks a bunch of questions and God just keeps answering the question, the angel of the Lord does not. So if the angel of the Lord appears to you, don't question him. So he says, this is what's going to happen. You're going to have a child. And then nine months later, the way that it goes, she has a child. That's the story. That's the way it works. That's how the narrative goes. But some of the elements really stand out to me. Not only the words that are used and, and the words that are said, but also just the context of the story. This whole story here is bringing to mind or to light the idea of waiting. It's Luke. It's Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 2 is going to be the story when the, when the, when the days had come, the, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. This is the prequel to the movie, right? This is the story before the story. The whole thing has to do with Christmas. And Christmas has a lot to do with waiting. These people... Not only the two people in the story, but everybody that they knew, everybody within their nation was waiting on a Messiah. They were waiting on a hero. They were waiting for the, the, the captain to be born, the person to come and set up the kingdom of David to free them from Roman occupation. In chapter 3, there's a verse talking about the baby that we just mentioned, Zeke and Liz's baby. When he's grown, it says, Now the people were waiting expectantly. All the people, the people of the nation, the people of the community, they were waiting expectantly. All of them were questioning in their hearts whether John, the baby that will be born, might be the Messiah. Everyone was waiting on the Messiah. And that's sort of the story of Christmas. That's the setting, the context, the narrative, the backdrop of Christmas, that people are waiting on the Messiah. The way that we celebrate Christmas is Christmas answers that question. Advent, that's the season um, that leads up to the day Christmas. So technically we say happy Advent and then on the day you say Merry Christmas because that's, that's the way that it goes. The Advent, the situation with the Advent is showing that Jesus came. Jesus has arrived. That's what Advent means. The arrival. He has come to answer this big waiting moment. When we celebrate Christmas, we're not only remembering that Jesus came the first time, we are anticipating that he will come again in the second advent, in the return of Jesus. And we can have confident hope in that reality. Why? Because 
he came the first time. This whole narrative, the big overarching grand narrative of the Bible, the overarching narrative of Luke 1 all the way to the end as this author writes to a person to convince him of the story of Jesus, the whole big story is all about, at this point, finally, the wait is over. That's the context of what's going on here. It's not only the context or the narrative, but it's also the specific words that are used in the story. Not by the angel, not by Zeke or Liz, but by Luke. As Luke writes this down, he is trying to communicate the concept over and over and over of timing and waiting. It's on every line throughout the entire text. I went through it, and I will, uh, I'll read some of them to you. I have them underlined here in red. If you had your journal, you could go through and mark up some of these yourself. Verse 5 begins with, in these days, then well along in years, talking about um, their age. 8, when? 9, it happened that. 10, at that hour. Um, go down a little bit. 14, there will. Many will. For he will, he will, he will, and he will. On down a little bit further, you will. You will be. The people were waiting, 24, after these days. And verse 25, in these days. The very language, the tense, the words that Luke is using in the story is supposed to communicate sort of an urgency, sort of a finally this is happening. And then it happened. And this was the time. And it will happen. And it was going to happen. This is the um, mood that Luke is bringing up in the text. You remember like a lot of times when we were looking at Isaiah or any sort of Hebrew written text, they will book in the stories with, with phrases that sort of show you the theme. Y'all remember that? Well, this story starts literally with the phrase in verse five, in the days of, right? That's what it starts with. And then in verse 25, Liz says in her prayer or in her excitement that she's going to have a child, she says, in these days, in the days of, in these days are the bookend to the story that shows that the very words that are being used are showing us timing. Finally, the wait is over. It's not only the narrative, it's not only the actual words that are used in the text, but it's also the contents of the story. The actual words that are being spoken, and in particular, the words that are being spoken by the angel. If you look at verse 13, look at verse 13. This is sort of the key verse of the text. And here's what it says. But the angel said to him, Luke wrote this, but the angel said to him, and this is what the angel says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Stop. Even though we read this just that way, because we understand those words, there is so much going on in just that phrase. So much is happening that is earth-shattering. That is, and I'm not being hyperbolic in this at all, time-altering in that phrase when he says that. Let me tell you what I mean. First of all, it's this concept of God speaking. He speaks through the angel in this story, but God's words coming to humanity. God has a message. Angels deliver that message. If you'll remember, in the Old Testament, all of the stories, nearly every single story, besides maybe Esther, is this concept of God speaking. That God speaks and it happens. Nearly all of your favorite Old Testament stories have some element, and usually at the beginning, in which God 
speaks. Think about it. In the beginning, God created. How did he create? He said, let there be, and there was. God says in chapter 3, verse 15, that he would send an answer, that he would make a way um, to fix, to redeem, to adopt what humanity had broken. God says in a few chapters later to a man who's just standing there minding his own business, I'm about to destroy everything. Here's probably what you're going to want to do. God speaks later to a man who's an idol worshiper out by himself, pagan person, and he says to him, I want you to go to a place you've never been, and from you I will bless all the nations of the earth, and you and your wife, even though you're very old, will have a child. You will have a child, and from that I will make a family, and then I will make a nation, and I will make a people, and that people he did make. The people becomes entrapped they're enslaved in Egypt and God speaks. God says from a bush that appears to be burning and yet it was not consumed. God says, Moses, Moses, I want you to do this. Moses says, I'm not very good at speaking. God says, I've got a plan for that because God works through his words. The message that he takes to the most powerful nation at that time is, you know it, let my people go. And he brings those people, just a people, from a man that became a family to a people. He brings them out into the middle of the desert, into the middle of the wilderness, and from the top of the mountain, it sounds like thunder, but it's the voice of God saying, you will not, you will not, you will not. And he takes that people and he gives them a law. He gives them a leader. He gives them a religion. From his voice, he creates a nation. And from that voice, he calls prophets. He sets aside kings. He speaks to priests. It is God's voice who speaks, God's voice who creates, God's voice who acts. That's what God's voice does from the very beginning of the story all the way to the end of the Old Testament. And then, silence. Not one word from God for 400 years. There's not a burning bush. There's not a message from a prophet. There's not an angel speaking. 400 years, God is silent. And then all of a sudden, the voice, the word from God comes. Do not be afraid. That changes everything. It shifts everything. And then he says in the very next verse, so that's one thing, 400 years, the angel of the Lord breaks the silence of God and he says these words, your prayer has been answered. Your prayer has been answered. Now that just sounds like something the angels say, right? When you read the Bible, that's what angels say, but there's a lot of meaning to that because you've got to ask yourself, what is the prayer? If you circle that in your journal there, what is the prayer? The prayer could be, because you know that they're all waiting on Mashiach. They're waiting on the Messiah. And so maybe he's been praying for a Messiah. You could also, from the context of the story, understand this, that he is a priest and he's offering incense. You'll see that down in a couple of verses. He's offering incense in verse 9 and in verse 8. And incense in the Old Testament, you'll remember, uh, represents the prayers of the nation that go up before God. They are a pleasing aroma to God. So incense could be the prayer. Maybe the angel is saying, hey, your prayer for a Messiah has been answered. We're going to do that the next chapter. Or maybe he's saying that the incense is coming come up. I've heard the prayers of my people. Maybe those are the two prayers that he is answering, but more probable is the next phrase. He says, your prayer has been answered. Your wife, Elizabeth, is going to bear a son. 
She is going to have a child. The specific prayer that the angel of the Lord is saying to Zeke is that the prayer for a child has been answered. But keep this in mind. As the Bible has already said very clearly, they are old. They are very old. Verse 7, but they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. Taking the part of the unable to conceive part off to the side, just think about the well along in years. It doesn't specifically say how old they are, but they could be in their 80s or in their 90s. They're about to have their first child. This prayer, think about that for just a second. If a couple is unable to conceive, if they are unable to have a child, they don't have the, the means. It's not set up the same way that they could adopt, the, the way that we could adopt. So their resort is to, is to pray. They pray as we should when we confront something that's a challenge. And so as they are praying, think about this. If a couple is go, can't conceive and they begin to pray for a son, they do that, or a child, they do that in their 20s, right? When they're, when they're first married. They may continue to do that in their 30s, even though God hasn't given them a child for 10 plus years. In their 30s, they may pray that. In their 40s, they may continue to pray that. Three decades of praying the same prayer, will you give us a child? In their, in their late 40s, their 50s, they, they, they probably stop praying that. In their 60s and their 70s, this is a long forgotten prayer. By the time you're in your 80s and your 90s, you're not praying that prayer anymore. It's an abandoned request before the Lord. I read a lot of commentaries that make it out like Zeke and Liz were serving the Lord with this bitter heart that their, answer, that their prayer was never answered. And I just don't see that in the text. Here's the way that I choose to picture this. I think Zeke and Liz are like the coolest kind of grandparents on the street, that she's always making up stuff and, and, and giving it out. She loves children. She's always wanted to, She never was able to have a child. And, and, and Zeke, he's, he's kind of stoic, and, and he doesn't say a lot, especially later on, but he doesn't say a lot, but, but he will communicate to the kids, and, and he shows them how to do things like fish and make stuff, and he shows the younger priest how to be a good priest with integrity and strength, and to stand up and to speak and to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. Zeke's that kind of guy and Liz is that kind of lady. They're just serving the Lord. But the reality is this, that it has been a long time, a very long time since either Zeke or Liz has prayed, God, would you give us a child? And yet, in the context of the story, God is screaming to the nation and to the world, even though the world does not know it yet, the wait is over. The wait is over. That's what's going on here. And I really don't want to belabor the point here, but if we just read it the way that we read it, then you're going to miss it. Because to us, you just flip one page. God was just speaking and you flip one page and God's talking again. It's one page. We forget that it's 400 years. We just met the guy and they seem really nice. They're upstanding and right and obeying all the commands of the Lord and then God's going to give them a child. But you don't remember, we don't realize that this is 50, 60 years of waiting on a child, 400 years of God not speaking. The whole context, the, the story, the backdrop, the theme, the emotion, the setting is this. The wait is over. So what do we do in the wait? 
What do we do? Because all of us are waiting on something. As I said in my prayer earlier, and I, and, I, and I really hope that you'll see this, we all are waiting. Most of your life is in the waiting. It's not standing on the platform, um, getting the medals or accomplishing or, or achieving. It's all the stuff in between. So what do we do looking at this story? What do we do in the waiting? And how do we do that? What I want to say here very quickly is a disclaimer, though. We're going to look at the person of Zeke and Elizabeth. We're going to look at them, but I want to be very clear here. Even if you do exactly what Zeke and Liz do, it does not guarantee that God is going to give you whatever it is that you're praying for. He does here. It's just more likely that God will use you when you are allowing yourself to be used by God. If you reject God and don't live a life that honors God, then it is probable, it is almost always, unless he's going to kill you, that he's not going to glorify you in his life. That's just the way the Old Testament goes. If you live your life honoring God, he uses those kinds of people. If you live your life not honoring God, you usually end up dead. But God is still glorified in either way. That's just the way that that goes. So I want to make that disclaimer before we look at the kind of person that Zeke and Liz are. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, both were righteous in God's sight. That means right standing. Anytime you see the word righteous, you mean right standing with God. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame, according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. Whew. Listen, if this is what it takes for God to use me, then you're going to have to count me out. Like, these people sound perfect. They're righteous. They're, they're living by all the commands and the requirements of the Lord. They are without blame. If this is what it takes for God to use, I, I can't meet that kind of standard. Furthermore, it says that both of them were. How many of you are married thinking, if it takes both of us to be perfect at this thing, then God's not going to use us. God's just not going to use us. I know that's the situation over here, but... God is not going to use us in these situations. It feels daunting. It feels like it's overwhelming, but there's something that we can carry away from this. First of all, the righteous thing. If they were righteous, then what that would mean is that their prayers are God-honoring. God honors the prayers that are in line with his will. God honors those who are praying not selfish prayers. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't pray for yourself. I think some of the most powerful prayers are, God, I pray for me. But it's not a self-serving prayer. That's what righteous means, to stand right with God. These are these prayers that they're doing. So that's one of the things we could take away from righteousness. The other thing we could take away from righteousness is to let Jesus define what that standard is. When I read this, I think, there's no way I can meet that standard. They had like 600 laws, and he's a priest. And so he probably had extra laws. And they're doing all of this perfectly. So what does Jesus say is that standard? In Luke chapter 18, there's a story of a, a man who's, who's um, known or as labeled as a rich young ruler. He comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what do I have to do to be right standing? To gain eternal life is the way he says it, but it's just a synonymous way of saying that. What do I have to do to be uh, in right standing with God? And, and Jesus says, well, go sell everything that you have, take care of those in need, and then follow me. The Bible says that the man goes away sad because he has a lot of stuff. He's not willing to let loose of the things that have his heart right now and instead serve those in need 
and then to follow or trust God. That's the way that it comes out. Serve others and trust God. In Luke chapter 10, I'm trying to stay within Luke so we can let Luke interpret Luke. But in Luke chapter 10, uh, it's, it's a similar story where somebody comes up to Jesus and says, hey, what, what do I have to do? What, what's the standard? What's the thing that I have to meet? And Jesus responds back and says, well, have you murdered anybody? And the guy says, oh, of course not. I haven't murdered anybody. You kept all the commands? Sure. Well, then you know that you are supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. And the second is like it, that you would love others as yourself. In both stories, the standard, according to Jesus, the thing to meet is to trust God and to love other people. To trust God with our lives and to sacrifice and to give to other people. This is the standard. And so nobody, keep this in mind, nobody before Jesus is perfect. Nobody after Jesus is perfect. The kind of people that God uses, the kind of people that God blesses, none of them are perfect. They're just people that with all of their effort love God and love other people. And so let me tell you this, and this is the most important message of the day, is that to be in a right standing with God, it's the same thing for you right now as it was for Zeke and for Liz and for the rich young ruler and for the inquisitive scholar is this, that if you trust God, if you trust God, it will be displayed in love for other people. That's the right standing, that your trust, your faith, your hope would be put in God. And so you can do that today. You can be made right with God today. We see this fleshed out in two of the most inconsequential verses, eight and nine. If you were to read Luke chapter one this morning, you would have skimmed right through eight and nine. It's just background noise, but they are not. Luke nine, or Luke one, verse nine, when his division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God. That's just background noise, right? Well, no, of course not. It says, when his duty was on division, or when his division was on duty, when it was his turn, his team's turn, and they had responsibilities. It means exactly what it sounds like it means, but it's a little less military than you're thinking. That there was something more, uh, uh, um, something more Whole or, or warm to it. Look at second, or don't look there, I'll read it to you. Second Chronicles 31 verse 2 says, Hezekiah, that's a king, established the divisions, similar word, of priests, similar words, and Levites for the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings for, this is their purpose, this is what they do, for ministry, for ministering to other people, for giving thanks and for praise in the gates of the camp of the Lord. Each division corresponding to his service among the priests and the Levites. The responsibility that Zeke was meeting in this moment is that he was ministering to other people, that he was being a priest, that he was loving other people. He was serving other people. The very same thing that we're supposed to do, that's exactly what Zeke is doing in verse 8. When his division was on duty, when he was serving, when he was ministering, when he was being a priest. That's what God calls us to do in all of those settings, especially if you read 1 Peter and see what priest means for us to stand before God and other people and to declare the marvelous light he has called us from out of darkness. Not only is there this duty, but there is also the verse 9, which is really weird for Baptists to read. All right, are y'all ready? This is like when they mention alcohol and we all just skip over it. Verse 9. It happened that he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. To burn incense. Okay, 
So it happened that he was chosen by Lot. They threw lots, they drew straws on who was going to go into the temple. And Baptists, somewhere along the lines, decided that sounded like gambling, and so it's bad. We don't do that anymore, even though that's exactly what happened right here in the text. We think of it like gambling. In other words, we think of it or interpret it like this. Do what you know to be good, and then leave the rest to chance. It'll just work out. It's just the way it's supposed to work out. But that's not what's happening in the scripture. What's happening in the scripture is God used lots or drawing of straws or they would throw it down in some way that it would reveal who the winner or the loser was. They would throw it down and that God would speak through that. They did this when Jonah was on the boat. You remember? Jonah was on the boat and they were like, who, who here is running from their God? Oh, it's that guy. Throw him over. Um, they did this to divide out the land. They did this when they were selecting kings sometimes or when the ordinance of the kings came down. They did this to choose Matthias to replace Judas as one of the 12 apostles or disciples. This is the way that God speaks. This is the way that God reveals himself before we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So in other words, it is not do what you know to be good and then leave it up to chance. It is very simply and clearly over and over every text in the Bible like this. Do what you know to be good. Serve other people and trust God. The angel of the Lord is not standing in the temple waiting. And then Zeke walks in and he's like, whew, good. We were hoping it would be you. Weren't sure, but since it is you, got a message. No, because he knew that Zeke was going to come in. Why? Because God was orchestrating everything that was happening. We do this when we read the Bible and believe it and seek to apply it. We do this when we pray, believing that God hears our prayers. We do this when we give sacrificially to the work of Christ through the local church, knowing that together we can serve more people than we can ever independently. We do this when we turn down personal advancement for the good of others. We do this when we risk ridicule to share the gospel with our friends and our family and our neighbors. We do this. We trust God when we ask him to protect us on foreign mission trips or if we're going to go to worship gathering during a pandemic. We trust God in this way. This is the way it is. That in the waiting, in the time in between, whether you're waiting for the Messiah to return, in our case, or you're waiting for God to do something which seems so natural and simple like the birth of a child, in between what we are to do is to serve other people and to trust God. It's exactly what Zeke was doing. It's exactly what Liz was doing. That's exactly what we are called to do. I have to bring up this question, though. Why does God make us wait at all? Why, doesn't, why isn't God, like, at least faster than Amazon? Why isn't God, like, one day delivery? Why isn't he, like, one hour? Why doesn't God just do the thing that he's going to do anyways. Why does he make us wait at all? Because, listen, it's in that time that God is developing what uh, us, that God is developing the world. It, over and over it says, when the fullness of time had come, when you read Luke chapter 2, watch for the finally it's happening sort of words that God is orchestrating things. And we can get into what's called Pax Romana and Lex Romana and that has a lot to do with what God was doing. But even in the individual life, think about this. The child that Liz and Zeke are about to have, his name is John. He's John the Baptist. He is a man of unquestionable integrity. He preaches the word of God. He stands in the middle of a desert and he points his finger at a king, at an authority, at a leader, at a, at a politician who is wayward. 
He's that sort of man with that sort of integrity. Think about this, and I'm not sure you've ever thought about this before, but John the Baptist disciples most of the disciples. Jesus calls John the Baptist disciples. John is an incredible figure, and he is that way because of the Holy Spirit, but he's also that way because he had really great parents who raised them, who raised him to be the— that whole time frame, God was making the parents of John the Baptist. I want to share this quote. Fulton J. Sheen, he's an archbishop um, with the Catholic Church. He's dead now. He says, Patience is not an absence of action. Rather, it is timing. It waits on the right time to act for the right principles and in the right way. That is true of virtuous people. It is also true and certainly true of what God does. That he is not not acting just because you're waiting. He's working on you. So two quick applications. The first one is, are you loving people? Here Zeke shows us the way he loves people. And I don't want to be too on the cheek with this, but Zeke was in the temple serving the people. And there are a million ways you can be involved here in this church serving. You can serve in the booth back there. And as we recognize that two times the number of people are watching online than are watching, that becomes vitally important. You can serve in music and singing. You can serve in greeting. You can serve in the next-gen ministry or following up with other people. Right now we're doing adopt a, uh, adopt a, a foster family. That's a real quick short-term way that you can serve and love other people. So I don't really care how you do it. Just how, make sure that you have an answer to the question, how are you serving other people? The other question is, how are you trusting God? I talked to a guy this week who is turning down what I believe to be an incredible opportunity. He will make more money. He will have an easier job. Doesn't that sound good? That's what most people just base the whole decision on. Easier job, more money, boom. He will help his family, all of these different things that he will, he'll have more resources. He turned the opportunity down because he said, the only reason I would take it is out of fear, is out of fear of going forward without it. So much of our decisions today are based not in trusting God. They're based in fear. Their job choices, our family decisions, the way that we speak to others are often revealing of our insecurities and our own fears, not trust. So how would you answer this question? In what you are doing now, how are you trusting God in that situation? In the waiting, how are you just trusting God to work the things out? I want to sort of round out this study this morning with a quote. Uh, a quote from an author that, before I studied this, I, I really had not heard of her before. But I'm thinking that if you have something to write down, you might want to write down her name. Her name is Betsy Childs Howard. She wrote a book called Seasons of Waiting, Walking by Faith When Dreams Are Delayed. You may want to read that later. I'll just say it again. Betsy Childs Howard, Seasons of Waiting. She wrote, Waiting exposes our idols and throws a wrench into our coping mechanisms. It brings us to the end of what we can control and forces us to cry out to God. God doesn't waste our waiting. He uses it to conform us to the image of his son. That's what I really want to share with you. That's the point that I really want to convince you. To see waiting as a gift because God doesn't waste our waiting and we shouldn't either. Like many of you, most of you, we begin our morning with a cup of coffee. Unlike most of you, we 
drink Cuban coffee. I've told you about that before. I'm not going to tell you about how you make it and all that kind of stuff. I'll tell you some other time when you're completely bored and I just have your ear. That's what we drink in the morning. As an aspect of making it, we have to make it on a percolator on the stove. And an aspect of making it, you have to wait. If you want the froth to turn out perfect, then you need about a tablespoon of the very first coffee that starts to come out of the percolator. If you want it to be right, that's what you have to do. And so whomever wakes up earliest and starts the coffee, they have the job of standing there. I timed it this morning for at least 13 minutes and to wait on the very first coffee that comes out of the, the, the top of the percolator there. Turns out that's usually Jackie. Somehow she, uh, she wakes up before me. Somehow I sleep right through um, what's going on there. But there's a thing that I noticed as she is making the coffee. Sometimes when I go in there and she is making the coffee, um, there's a thing that I noticed that she is always, and I'm sure lots of you do the same thing, but she is always, she has her phone with this app open where she is reading the Bible. Every single morning, she is reading the Bible. But not just the Bible, as many of you know, like 150 of you at least know, you ladies, she's reading it with you. And then she'll make some sort of comment, some sort of encouragement, some sort of Jackie type thing to say. I realize that. It's a good illustration. It's a common every single day illustration that before most people have a cup of coffee, she is spending time with God and encouraging you. She's trusting God and she is loving you. That's a good illustration, I think, for all of us that in the waiting, we not waste the waiting. Instead, we trust God and we love others because God does not waste our waiting. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.